Part Two: Poppy Strikes Gold. George W. could not have amassed this pile if his surname were Jones or Smith. While other candidates begged, pleaded, and wheedled for donations, the Bushes added a creative, lucrative new twist to the money chase that contenders couldn't imitate. Poppy Bush's post-White House work. It laid the foundation for W's campaign, Kitty Corpulence, and not incidentally, raised the family's net worth by several hundred percent. In 1998, for example, the former president and famed Desert Stormtrooper in Chief wrote to the oil minister of Kuwait on behalf of Chevron Oil Corporation. Bush says honestly that he had no stake in the Chevron operation. True, but following this selfless use of his influence, the oil company put six hundred fifty-seven thousand dollars into the Republican Party coffers. Not all of the elder Bush's work is voluntary. His single talk to the board of Global Crossing, telecom startup, earned him stock worth thirteen million dollars when the company went public. And while the Bush family steadfastly believes that ex-felons should not have the right to vote for president, they have no objection to ex-cons putting presidents on their payroll. In 1996, despite pleas by U.S. church leaders, Poppy Bush gave several speeches. He charges $100,000 per talk, sponsored by organizations run by Reverend Sun Myung Moon, cult leader, tax cheat, and formerly. The guest of the U.S. federal prison system. Some of the loot for the Republican effort in the 1997-2000 election cycles came from an outfit called Barrick Corporation. The sum, while over $100,000, is comparatively small change for the GOP. Yet it seemed quite a gesture for a corporation based in Canada. Technically, the funds came from those associated with the Canadians' U.S. unit, Barrick Gold Strike. They could well afford it. In the final days of the Bush Senior administration, the Interior Department made an extraordinary but little-noticed change in procedures under the 1872 mining law, the Gold Rush Era Act that permitted those whiskered small-time prospectors with their tin pans and mules to stake claims on their tiny plots. The department initiated an expedited procedure for mining companies that allowed Barrick to swiftly lay claim to the largest gold find in America. In the terminology of the law, Barrick could quote perfect its patent unquote on the estimated ten billion dollars in ore, for which Barrick paid the U.S. Treasury a little under ten thousand dollars. Eureka! Barrick, of course, had to put up cash for the initial property rights and the cost of digging out the booty, and the cost of donations in smaller amounts to support Nevada's Democratic Senator Harry Reid. Still. The shift in rules paid off big time, according to experts at the Mineral Policy Center of Washington D.C. Barrick saved, and the U.S. taxpayer lost a cool billion or so. Upon taking office, Bill Clinton's new Interior Secretary Bruce Babbitt called Barrick's claim "quote the biggest gold heist since the days of Butch Cassidy." Nevertheless, because the company followed the fast track process laid out for them under Bush. This corporate goldfinger had Babbitt by the legal nuggets. Clinton had no choice but to give them the gold mine, while the public got the shaft. Barrick said it had no contact whatsoever with the president at the time of the rules change. There was always a place in Barrick's heart for the older Bush, and a place on its payroll.
1995, Barrick hired the former president as honorary senior advisor to the Toronto Company's International Advisory Board. Bush joined at the suggestion of former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, who, like Bush, had been ignominiously booted from office. I was a bit surprised that the president signed on. When Bush was voted out of the White House, he vowed never to lobby or join a corporate board. The chairman of Barrick openly boasts that granting the title of, quote, senior advisor was a sly maneuver to help Bush tiptoe around this promise. I was curious, what does one do with a used president? Barrick vehemently denies that it appointed Bush, quote, in order to procure him to make contact with other world leaders whom he knows or who could be of considerable assistance, unquote, to the company. Yet, in September 1996, Bush wrote a letter to help convince Indonesian dictator Suharto to give Barrick a new hot gold mining concession. Bush's letter seemed to do the trick. Suharto took away 68% of the world's largest gold field from the finder of the ore and handed it to Barrick. However, Bush's lobbying magic isn't invincible. Jim Bob Muffet, a tough old Louisiana swamp dog who heads up Freeport McMoran, Barrick's American rival, met privately with Suharto. When Suharto emerged from their meeting, the kleptocrat announced that Freeport would replace Bush's Canadians. Barrick lucked out. The huge ore deposit turned out to be a hoax. When the con was uncovered, Jim Bob's associates invited geologist Mike D. Guzman, who, quote, discovered the gold, to talk about the errors of his ways. Unfortunately, on the way to the meeting, de Guzman fell out of a helicopter. Who is this Barrick to whom our former president would lease out the reflected prestige of the Oval Office? I could not find a Joe Barrick in the Canadian phone book. Rather, the company as it operates today was founded by one Peter Monk. The entrepreneur first came to public notice in Canada in the 1960s as a central figure in an insider trading scandal. Monk had dumped his stock in a stereo-making factory he controlled just before it went belly-up, leaving other investors and government holding the bag. He was never charged, but notes Canada's McLean's Magazine, the venture and stock sale, quote, cost Monk his business and his reputation. Yet today, Monk's net worth is estimated at $350 million, including homes on two continents and his own island. How did he go from busted stereo maker to demi-billionaire gold bug? The answer? Adnan Khashoggi, the Saudi arms dealer, the bagman in the Iran-Contra arms for hostage scandals. The man who sent guns to the Ayatollah teamed up with Monk on hotel ventures and ultimately put up the cash to buy Barrick in 1983, then a tiny company with an, quote, unperfected claim on the Nevada mine.